You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 10th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, a Brazilian court orders Facebook to delete a smattering of fake news stories. But how far from the stable door has the horse already got? My guests Robin Lustig and Victor Bulma-Thomas will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the continuing failure and or refusal of Saudi Arabia to explain the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi, the conclusion of the row over what became Britain's most expensive ever cake, and that's what it sounds like when a squirrel is forcibly disembarked from an aeroplane no prizes for guessing which American state that happened in that's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Robin Lustig, journalist and broadcaster, former presenter of The World Tonight on BBC Radio 4, and Victor Bulma-Thomas, associate fellow with the US and America's programme at Chatham House. Welcome both. And we will start in Brazil, where campaigning in the country's presidential election has gone up a gear as the field has been reduced to two ahead of the runoff on October 28th. As now appears to be more or less inevitable, the discourse has been substantially flooded with unverified or outright fraud fraudulent stories disseminated by social media. Brazil's electoral court has managed to bail out a thimbleful of this deluge, ordering Facebook to remove links to 33 bogus stories targeting the running mate of Workers' Party candidate uh, Manuel de Vila. Manuel de Vila being, of course, the running mate, not the actual candidate, but I think we all know what I meant there. Um, Robin, will it make any difference? 33 nonsense stories deleted from the vast, sprawling empire of nonsense that is available on Facebook and other platforms? No, it won't make any difference at all, because if damage has been done, then it's already been done. I mean, people have already cast their votes in the first round of the election. The stories, fake or otherwise, are out there. They've gone around. People have either believed them or not believed them as uh, as they desired. Um, I mean, what, what, what's so depressing about this is that it's not a unique case. I mean, we now virtually see every election which allegedly is uh, interfered with by phony accounts on social media sites. And I think the organisations which host these sites, principally, let's name names, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, need to take their responsibilities very much more seriously. They need to start monitoring political content. They need to check who is putting political content political content online and uh, they need to check their uh, their bona fides um victor the more i think about this the, the the harder line on it i get to the point where i can't see the argument as to why facebook twitter other social media platforms should not be held to the same standards and subject to the same punishments as any other publisher um is that feasible and and should it be pursued should facebook be as accountable for something that appears under its masthead as any actual newspaper is Probably, yes. Uh, and certainly they can do a lot more. So I don't think we should let, uh, uh, you know, the good be the enemy of the best, or maybe I've got that the other wrong way around. But the fact is that uh, uh, there's a huge amount of progress that, uh, that, that needs to be made in this area. Fortunately, 
it wouldn't didn't matter that much in the first round of the Brazilian election because essentially you're whittling down a field of 13 candidates to two and it wasn't that close that uh, it would have affected the result but the second round is quite different in three weeks time there it might be very close and in which case um, let's hope that in the intervening three weeks the uh, authorities find a way not of eliminating this problem because you can't do that in three weeks but they're certainly reducing it there are jurisdictions, Robin, it occurs to me, that in the lead up to actual polling day uh, do impose certain restrictions. They ban political advertising, they ban or restrict the publication of opinion polls. Are we getting somewhere nearer a point at which there might be an argument for doing something as draconian as just shutting off social media sites? I just don't think it can be done. I mean, social media sites are sort of almost... Uh, organic in, in, in the way in which they operate. It is extraordinarily difficult, unless you're the Chinese Communist Party, to actually ban access to these sites. And even in China, heaven knows, uh, most young Chinese certainly have found ways of getting around the, uh, the, the Great Firewall of China. So it, I don't think that can be done. I think what really needs to be done is that the, uh, the social media organizations need to be persuaded that they are publishers, they're more than platforms, and they have publishers' responsibilities. They need to be made, at least in political uh, content, to take responsibility for what they put online and who and, and checking who is putting it online. Because I guess then, Victor, if we look at this ruling by Brazil's electoral court, if you're running a social media platform, you probably should look at this as a a bit of a wake-up call, shouldn't you? Because there will be more judgments like this around the world, and it may we may reach a point at which the social media platforms are told, either sort this out or we'll sort it out for you. Yes, and they need to deal with the blatant and flagrant uh, lies which uh, are perpetrated on their on their platforms. The fact is that uh, some of these stories about Manuela Davila are so uh, ridiculous that, uh, you know, an intern should have been able to uh, uh, spot it after a few seconds. Now, I can see there are sometimes going to be cases where you have to dig a lot deeper and you have to uh, perhaps uh, take a few weeks to uh, resolve it. But we're talking here about flagrant <coughs> and outrageous uh, abuses of uh, of the privilege of uh, being able to provide uh, political views uh, before an election. I think Mark Zuckerberg has actually intimated that he would rather welcome more regulation uh, because he, I think, has discovered, perhaps a bit little late, that Facebook is this massive organisation over which he really has very little control. I mean, it's something like, I think it's two billion users now uh, on Facebook. Um, so if it was a country, it would be the most populous country in By the world. By miles. By miles, yeah. So it, 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 is, a, it is a major issue. Uh, as I understand it, Facebook have acceded to the uh, court ruling in Brazil to hand over the IP addresses of the computers from which some of this material was uploaded. Now, that's a very significant thing because it means that the authorities in Brazil can now actually track down who was putting this material online. Were they in Brazil? Were they outside Brazil? If other governments were to start to do that, it would have very serious implications. Well, let's move on now and look at the ongoing saga of Jamal Khashoggi, which is not getting any less weird and or sinister. It is now slightly more than a week since the self-exiled Saudi journalist went into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to attend to some minor patients. 
paperwork. He has not been seen or heard from since. Turkish media outlets have today released CCTV footage of what they say are the comings and goings of the Saudi intelligence operatives who spirited Khashoggi out of the country, whether dead or alive. Turkey claims that the Saudis murdered Khashoggi on the premises. Saudi Arabia denies this, but has not as yet bothered furnishing a counter-narrative. Um, Victor, does any of this make any sense at all? It's an extremely strange story, even by the standards of an extremely strange year. Well, we mustn't jump to hasty conclusions. Indeed not. Because uh, hopefully he's still alive and at some point will reappear. But uh, we do need to ask ourselves what motive uh, A, Saudi Arabia would have for killing him and B, what motive Turkey would have for uh, revealing this story. Um, I can't see any reason why Turkey would make it up, as it were. Um, True, their relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia is not the greatest, but they're not enemies either. And the thing is, of course, if you make an accusation like that and you don't know it's the case, you run the very real risk of looking completely ridiculous if the person turns out not to be dead. Yes, exactly. That that Saudi Arabia would have an interest in uh, silencing this man is manifestly true. That doesn't mean, of course, they would necessarily go as far as to bump him off, but it is possible that... In trying to silence him one way or another, things sadly got out of hand. But Robin, would the Saudis, this is the thing I don't understand, uh, would the Saudis actually have had that much interest in silencing him? Because it's it's not like he was a fire-breathing, bomb-thrower, you know, revolutionary who wanted to overthrow the House of Saud. He, he was advocating reform. He was largely positive, in fact, about the reforms that were being enacted. Um, and aside from anything else, as is always the case in such cases, millions of people around the world now know his name and his writing who'd never heard of him a week ago. Uh, That is true, but I think the key thing here from the point of view of the Saudi Crown Prince is that Jamal Khashoggi had a platform in Washington, D.C. He was a regular columnist on the Washington Post. What he said was read uh, by policymakers in Washington. Now, the relationship with Washington is very important to the Saudis, and Crown Prince Mohammed is uh, believed to take very seriously uh, his own position as the the one person who is in control of the reform process, if that's what it is, in Saudi Arabia. And to have somebody like Jamal Khashoggi, whom I remember as a commentator based in Saudi Arabia under previous regimes, uh, one of the very few Saudi journalists at that time who was allowed to talk to the Western media, as it were, almost on behalf of the regime. He is not, as you say, a firebrand revolutionary. Nevertheless, he was not in the in the control of the Saudi uh, royal family or of Prince Mohammed. And uh, that might have given him a cause for some concern. The Saudis do have a track record of abducting their nationals from overseas uh, if they are causing problems for them and returning them forcibly to Saudi Arabia. I sort of hope that that's what's happened to Jamal Khashoggi because it is a less bad outcome than the alternatives. What we know is that he went into the consulate and nobody has seen him come out. 
Um, Victor, we also, know, well, we, we think we know. Again, I think we have to include a certain number of uh, caveats before we, we take the word of the current Turkish government for terribly much. But the, the, they are releasing footage which claims to show 15 Saudis arrive, nine of them by private jet, six on scheduled flights, hours before Khashoggi's appointment at the consulate in Istanbul, and then leaving the same day. It's, it's difficult to think of an imaginably innocent explanation for that. Well, yes, but um, I mean, one, this has got alarming parallels with the Skripal case in the UK, of course. Uh, So we can't just rely on uh, CCTV footage or or anything like that. I think just to add something to what Robin said, um, the fact that Khashoggi was such a loyal supporter of the regime in the past means that he probably knows where a lot of the bodies are buried. And this is something that uh, would be uh, deeply concerning uh, to the regime, particularly, as you say, because he has such a strong following in Washington, D.C., uh, Robin, the case has in the last day or two thrown up a, a question of journalistic ethics. The, the BBC, your former employer, have released some comments that uh, Mr Khashoggi made off-air prior to giving an interview. Uh, Tom Friedman, the, the New York Times inexplicable foreign affairs correspondent, uh, has also quoted some off-the-record quotes that he, he was given by uh, Khashoggi. I'm not sure I'm... I'm pretty sure I'm not in favour of either of these things. I tend to think that w- what is off the record stays off the record, especially if we don't know, and we don't know, um, what has happened to him and whether or not releasing uh, material like this might be making matters worse. It is problematic. I, I think it's a difficult decision for editors to make. I mean, they had this recording of uh, Mr Khashoggi in a BBC studio just a few days before... He entered the consulate in which he talked about his concerns about what might happen if he were to return to Saudi Arabia. Um, The BBC have put out a statement today in which they explain their reasoning. They say that there were two considerations they had. Was there a public interest in broadcasting what he'd said and would broadcasting it put him at any greater risk? They say that the answers they came up with were in favour of broadcasting this material, partly because he didn't actually say anything in these uh, not-for-broadcast comments that he hadn't already said on air or in print. Um... I have to be honest, I think if it were me having to make that decision, I wouldn't have broadcast the remarks because if it is true that he had said the same thing previously, then the newsworthiness, the public interest in broadcasting them again is much diminished. And the risk, as you say, of making a situation worse, if, as we hope, he is indeed still alive, uh, is a very serious one. So I would always, if a man's life is at risk, err on the side of caution. Victor, what do you think? Is is, is, is off the record an absolute... Um, absolute definition was the word I was looking for. Uh, yes, I think it is, actually. I think the BBC has been very irresponsible in this matter. Uh, off the record should mean off the record. I can only th- think of maybe two circumstances where it would be legitimate to release uh, Uh, such uh, words. One would be in the case of a criminal inquiry when you'd have a legal obligation, you'd have no choice. And the other would be is if you were revealing something which helped to understand uh, 
what had happened if he had died, for example. But it doesn't seem to me that the, what was released helps in, in any way to our understanding of this issue and just undermines the, uh, the, 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 the trust that interviewers would hope to have with journalists such as yourself, Andrew. <laughs> um, just, just a final thought on this, uh, Victor. If we, if we look at how this now looks for Saudi Arabia, is there, is there actually any imaginable way they can just ride this out by saying nothing, by saying we've simply got no idea, we don't know where he went? Well, again, we'll have parallels with uh, uh, Russia and the Skripal case. Uh, it's uh, highly unlikely that you can just say nothing. Uh, and so if they're going to say something, they will have to do it sooner rather than later. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Robin Lustig and Victor Bulma-Thomas. Coming up next, a free speech judgment which probably deserves a more serious name than gay cake row. But we are where we are. Curtains up. Premiering in Monocle's October issue is our very first culture preview. From big box film releases to the art market's latest moves, we guide you through all you need to watch, see and read this autumn. On our global tour, we take a peek into Helsinki's newest museum to find out how Finland's art scene is stepping up its game and consider the future of Nordic noir. Is the Scandi bubble about to burst? Not to mention more finds from Switzerland to Taiwan. In our fashion pages, our bi-annual Top 50 will deliver all the scarves, coats and knits you need to keep cosy and suitably sharp. Autumnal breeze or not, Tom Ford isn't afraid to bear it all. We hear from the American designer on why it's the perfect time to launch a line of underwear. We sit down with Iceland's Prime Minister to find out how the left-wing environmentalist thawed her countrymen's suspicion of politicians and get a few tips from developers and retailers making the high street worth celebrating. Plus, we meet the architects rethinking our homes for a more sustainable future. The Monocle October issue is out now on all good newsstands. Do get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Robin Lustig and Victor Bulma-Thomas. Here in the UK, the Supreme Court has found unanimously in favour of a couple of Northern Irish bakers who declined back in 2014 to fulfil a commission for a cake endorsing gay marriage. Their putative customers sued, claiming discrimination, but the bakers argued, successfully it turns out, that their objection was not to the customer but to the sentiment. The bakers said they had served the complainant before and would be happy to do so again. Among those who ended up in the Baker's Corner, possibly surprisingly, was the veteran gay rights activist Peter Tatchell, who noted that while he disagreed with the Baker's views on gay marriage, he also disagreed with people having to facilitate a political idea they oppose. Um, Robin, as a general rule, I find if you just basically agree with Peter Tatchell on things like this, you're unlikely to go too far wrong. Uh, I think I agree with what he said. Have we got to the right place eventually here? I, I, I think, actually, we have. Um, th the way I approached it was this way. If I were a baker, which I'm not, and if somebody came into my baker's shop and said, I want you to bake me a cake, and I want you to put on top of it the slogan, all black people must be deported, do I have a legal obligation to bake that cake and put that slogan on the top? Because I disagree fundamentally with the, the uh, sentiments expressed. I would be very upset if the law said I had to bake such a cake with such a slogan. And I think this is 
approximately the same case. The bakers say, and the court accepted, that they had served these customers before, happy to serve them again. It wasn't the customers they were discriminating against. It was the sentiments expressed on the, that they wanted expressed on the cake. Uh, I'm in favour of free speech, but I'm not in favour, I don't think, of people being forced by law to create something which contradicts their own political or moral beliefs. Uh, Victor, the the theoretical comparisons that Peter Tatchell invoked were a a, a Muslim printer being told that he had no choice but to produce cartoons of Muhammad, uh, or a Jewish printer being told that he had no choice but to reproduce, I don't know, the protocols of the elders of Zion or or tracts denying the Holocaust. Do those comparisons hold water? I thought so. I thought Peter Tatchell was very good on this, actually. It's very clear, very measured. Uh, he usually is, in fairness. Uh, and the interesting thing is that the other person that the, the BBC interviewed on this, uh, I can't remember the name, I'm afraid, but the person arguing uh, against the Supreme Court ruling seemed to me just so over the top and so extreme that uh, I thought this was, frankly, a rather easier moral uh, dilemma than you normally pose to us on this program, Andrew. So I thought it was, it was really quite a straightforward one. Are all three of us in agreement? I, I think we basically are, and yet we still have to talk about this for a few more minutes. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what we're going to do. Someone throw me a bone. No, I, I, well, what, can, I, can I just, uh, to help you out? In please. Case, I think another crucial thing here is the fact that this was a small business. Mm. Uh, once we get into the range of a huge company, uh, all sorts of different factors come to play. And but we are in a world in which we are seeing more and more small enterprises being created. But, but do they, though, even even if it's a big business and say, I, I think there's a comparison, I think this stacks up, you could make with the world of journalism. If somebody came to a newspaper or magazine you edited or indeed a radio show you hosted and said, here is a vast sack of cash in, for which in return for which I want you to say or advertise something you find profoundly objectionable, and you refuse to do that, it would seem a bit ridiculous that that person can then take you to court. Ah, but the difference is the big company would then show you 50 pages of small print in which they were covered. <laughs> that's the point. That's the point I'm making, that a small is, company won't have that, no, that's, and that, so there, they're more vulnerable. There is one other interesting parallel, which goes back a year or two, which was, I think, a, a couple who were running a bed-and-breakfast um, operation, and they objected to a same-sex couple coming to their establishment and wanting to share a room and a bed. Now, that to me is different because there they were discriminating discriminating against Against the customer customer on the grounds of their sexuality, which uh, is against the law and, in my view, is rightly against the law. I think the Baker case, and, and, and it's interesting that the Supreme Court seems to have come down this side, the, the, the Baker's case is different because the customer was not being discriminated against, so they found. I mean, is it the... Um, I mean, it, it's one of those things, Victor, that I suppose you could argue that this is one of those areas where the market can now decide as well, because this, these, these Northern Irish bakers have become probably the most famous bakers in Northern Ireland, and if you actually object to their their politics in particular, you can decide as an individual, well, I shall make my own statement by getting my cakes commissioned elsewhere. Uh, yes, indeed. Because <laughs> I, I, I rather suspect if I, if I knew for a fact that the local baker violently objected to gay marriage, I, I suspect I, I would take my custom to one of their competitors. Yes, which again comes back to the, if you know if, if this was only one baker in Northern Ireland which had a monopoly, uh, clearly the situation is very different. That's why I think it is important to stress that this is a small company in a very competitive market. So the customer has lots of choices. 
Well, in, in, indeed so. Uh, we, we move along finally uh, to a, a, a semi-related story. I guess it's semi-related. Uh, and we move along finally to the and finally state, uh, which is to say Florida. They really should put that on their licence plates. Uh, at Orlando Airport, Frontier Airlines has taken a stand against the indulgence of what are known apparently as emotional support animals by refusing to fly with one passenger's emotional support squirrel. Frontier pointed to its terms and conditions which forbid rodents and the passenger and her squirrel were disembarked after a brief standoff with police. Um, Robin, as a, as a general, I mean, I, I don't wish to get into the merits of squirrels as such. I, I am in general a big fan. I like squirrels. There are many of them in my garden. They, they distract me entirely amiably when I'm pretending to write. We'll have to day. agree to differ on that. But really? The, the cow- oh, yeah, well, there, there's like, some, there's some controversy here. You don't like squirrels. I don't, I don't, like, I don't like squirrels. Okay. They, they eat all the bird food out of our bird feeder. They eat quite a lot of the bird food out of my bird feeders as well, but, you know, the, the birds should just be quicker. It's, 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 it's evolution in action. Robin, but um, that, that wasn't the grounds on which Frontier Airlines decided. No, they didn't no, want it was to no, it was not. But wh- where are you in general on the idea of emotional support animals? I have sympathy with people who require emotional support animals. As I understand it, what many airlines now say is, if you want to bring such an animal on board, you have to provide a statement from your doctor, which attests to the fact that you genuinely have a medical need a mental health need for this animal. You need to give us advance warning that this is what you're going to do. And you need to give us evidence that this animal has been vaccinated against all the things that such animals need to be vaccinated against. It seems to me from what I've read about this particular case that although the passenger in question had said on her booking form that she would be bringing on board an emotional support animal, she didn't specify that it was a squirrel or in other words, a rodent. If she had done so, then she would have given the airline the opportunity, at least in theory, to make the necessary provision and the necessary checks. Um, I mean, it's easy to mock. I mean, on the face of it, it does sound That's, that's why we're doing it, Robin. That's why we're doing it. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I am persuaded that there are people who do require uh, to travel with emotional support animals, just as people uh, who are blind require service animals, as they're called, um, I just think that this particular passenger probably went around it the wrong way. Uh, Victor, first of all, because we now do have a note of controversy injected into what has been a a perhaps off-puttingly, complacently amiable programme to date, we do now have some controversy. Squirrels, are you broadly for or against? I love squirrels, and I don't distinguish between the the grey and the red. I'm very upset with the way in which uh, the grey is blamed for the reduction in the population of the red. So I'm a a squirrel file. Given that this was in America, (laughs) this particular episode about which we're we're, we're talking now, I assume the squirrel in question was a red one. Uh, No, sorry, a grey one. The grey ones are American, aren't they? The red ones are English. I I believe it to have been a a grey squirrel. Are you against red squirrels as well? I have more time for red squirrels, probably because they don't come to my back garden because there are so few of them. No, but that's... that's, that's, Is that faintly nativist of you? To be in favour of the the red squirrel as opposed to the grey? I I don't pretend to be logical in my (laughs) animal prejudices. Uh, I think part of the problem here is the use of the word rodent mm. because uh, rodent, of course, includes rats, but it includes many wonderful creatures. And I remember the time when the Queen went to Belize and she was served gibnut, uh, which is a member of the rodent family, but which is a delicious meat uh, that is uh, hunted in the, in the wild. And, of course, the British papers uh, ran the story, Queen made to eat rodent. 
Uh, or I think she, I think they said queen made to eat rat. <laughs> um, so I think if this squirrel had belonged to another family without the negative connotations of rodent, there might not have been quite the same issue. Well, this, this conversation has drifted into realms which I had not anticipated, I confess. There, there, there was the previous instance, though, Victor, in January of somebody attempting to board a flight in America with their emotional support peacock um, and were informed that that was probably pushing their luck a bit. Well, the distinction I would make is between those animals uh, which are domesticated and those which are not. Uh, I'm not sure you can domesticate a peacock, but you can certainly domesticate <laughs> a squirrel. Uh, I mean, if you come to Greenwich Park, uh, where I go every day, I can tell you a lot of those squirrels are highly domesticated and they depend well, on handouts from humans. The, the, the ones in Greenwich Park and the ones in Kew Gardens are a bit beyond domesticated. They're actually quite aggressive. It's, it's like being mugged. Um, the, the, well, you, you are more sensitive than I would have assumed for a man of your Antipodean upbringing. I mean, like I said, I, I, I came out earlier as, as broadly pro-squirrel. Um, I, I did want to ask either of you, well-travelled as you are, have, have you ever seen actual livestock on a flight? Because I, I confess I have not, and I feel like I'm missing something. A friend of mine swears blind they saw somebody board a domestic flight in Afghanistan with three goats once. Quite possible. I, I haven't. Um, I mean, if you disregard very young babies, as uh, <laughs> of which I've seen far too many on flights, but um, no, I've never seen an animal on a flight, which I'm, I'm quite grateful for, because I don't think it would contribute to my sense of well-being. There was somebody sitting behind me from Palermo to Rome, I think, a couple of years ago with an extremely squeaky dog, and I was very grateful that that was not a longer flight. Was it in the overhead? Uh, no, it was in a sort of cage on no, her lap. No, no, no. But whether or not to, to bring us seamlessly back into where we came because the clock is now against us, I don't know whether that was an emotional support animal or not. Didn't ask, frankly. And on that note of journalistic dereliction, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Robin Lustig and Victor Bulmer-Thomas, thank you for joining us. The show was produced by Bill Lutie, researched by Martha Libri. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you. Thank you for listening.